Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And be seated. Years ago, there was a popular program uh, to help Christians learn to share their faith, and uh, it was called Evangelism Explosion. Maybe some of you are familiar or remember Evangelism Explosion. And it taught Christians uh, to ask people a question. This question was meant to be a kind of spiritual diagnostic question uh, that would enable you to then share the gospel. And the question was this. If you were to die today and God were to ask you why you should be um, included in heaven, why you should gain entry into heaven, what would you say? You had to stand before holy God, and he asked you, why should you come into my heaven? What would you say? Now, there were some people who said this is, uh, this is not the best approach. Uh, certainly uh, today, many people would, would think that because a lot of people don't even believe in God or in heaven. And so you have to start kind of farther back before you get to God in heaven, some people say. Other people uh, would critique such a question by saying... Uh, this puts so much emphasis, and it makes Christians sound like we put so much emphasis on the hereafter and not on the here and now, this concern about heaven. And so uh, this approach has been critiqued by some people, and there might be something to some of those criticisms, but in the right context, I think that's a great question. Because the Apostle Paul and the New Testament throughout teach that we are going to stand before God as judge. God is holy. God is pure. God is perfectly righteous. And the question is, that's dealt with in the New Testament and the Apostle Paul deals with throughout his writings, is how can God, who is holy and righteous, accept sinners into his presence? And in our epistle reading, Paul talks about two answers to this question from Philippians chapter 3. One answer to this question is, you make yourself good enough for God and hope that's good enough. One answer to the question is to pursue the way of self-righteousness. And Paul calls this, in Philippians 3, confidence in the flesh. Now, before he met Christ, Paul was confident in his righteousness. He was confident in the flesh. He was confident with, uh, of his standing with God based on what he had done. And so he says, and it's not in your bulletin, but he says just before this passage in Philippians 3, 4, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to be confident in the flesh, I have more. You want to play this game? <laughs> I can play this game along with you. And I can beat you at this game. I have more reasons to be confident than you do. And then he begins to list the reasons for his confidence in the flesh. He had the right family background. He had the right religious and ethnic heritage. He says, 
uh, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's talking, he's primarily addressing here Gentiles who've not received the sign of circumcision. But there were Judaizers who were coming into this community saying that's what you need to do. You need to receive the, the covenant sign, the, 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 the sign that God gave Israel as a symbol that they are in a special relationship with him. The covenant sign of circumcision. And Paul says, I received that on the eighth day. I was born into the nation of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I have to say, based on my name, that Benjamin had a prominent place in the history of Israel. A special place. The first king of Israel, Saul, came from the tribe of Benjamin. So he had a high religious pedigree. He had the right religious pedigree. And then, then he talks about his religious accomplishments. He says, as to the law, a Pharisee. The Pharisees, out of all the Jewish people, were the most zealous to keep the law of God as they understood it. In Jesus' parable in Luke 18, you might remember it, where the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth, I give a tithe of all that I get. This was, this was what the Pharisees did. Fasted twice a week. Meticulous in tithing. And we see in the Gospels they were very careful to practice uh, the proper ceremonies and rituals. They practiced ritual hand washing before they ate. They were meticulous about keeping the law of God as they understood it. They were the special forces of the religious people of the day. They were the elite of the elite. And, and then Paul reminds the Philippians that he was so zealous for these traditions that he persecuted the church. As to zeal, he says, a persecutor of the church. No one can say, no one can accuse me, Paul says, of not being zealous for the traditions and the law. He saw as a Pharisee, Christianity as a threat. And then Paul makes this remarkable claim just before he gets to this passage. He says, as to the law, blameless. As to righteousness, I should say, under the law, blameless. He was blameless in keeping the law as he understood it as a Pharisee. And that means that Paul was a man of great discipline, great will, Great perseverance. The elite of the elite. So he has, I, you know, he, he's saying, I have every reason to be confident in the flesh. In, 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 in being confident in my religious attainments, in my heritage. But then, the turning point came when he met Christ. When he met Christ on the road to Damascus. And now he says, all these reasons that I had to be confident in my standing before God, the heritage, the discipline, the zeal, the pride. Now I consider it rubbish. For the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Yesterday, Sam and I took a walk in the woods behind our house. Our house, for those of you who don't know, just next to this property here. 
rectories over there. <laughs> and behind our house, we have a wooded area. And so this time of year, there's these, these mushrooms that pop up around here called morels. So for those of you around, in, you know, you've been around Missouri and Midwest, you know what these morels are. These are prized mushrooms. They taste great. And so around this time of year, these mushrooms pop up in the woods. And Sam and I, the last couple of years, have been going in the woods and getting some morels. And so we thought we're going to go after them yesterday. And so I grabbed a, a, a bag and we went into the woods. And um, I think we're, we're a bit early on the morel hunting. We didn't see a one. You know, 15, 20 minutes out there with our bag. And so I decided, well, let's not waste our time out here. Let's not waste this. Let's, let's use this bag to pick up trash because there's trash Unfortunately, all throughout those woods, and especially in the creeks, there's, there's trash. And so, you know, we went down into the creek and started picking up empty beer cans and soda cans and food wrappers, chip bags, even an old latex glove stuck in the mud of the creek. Put it into that bag. Our bag was full of this trash. And on our way home, Sam, he's a kindergartner, he says, I'm going to tell mom, he was holding the bag, that this is full of mushrooms. <laughs> We're going to fool her, Dad. <laughs> and so here he comes, bringing this bag of trash to mom. And she looks at it and she thought, wow, you guys had a great hunt. And then he opens it up and shows her. It's full of trash. Paul says, I was hoping to bring to God on the day of judgment a bag full of my good works, my accomplishments, my attainments, my zeal. But then I met the risen Christ, the crucified and risen Christ. And now I understand that compared to Christ, this is rubbish. It's not that his heritage or his discipline or his zeal to obey God was bad in and of itself. Not at all. He was blessed to have that heritage. He talks about this elsewhere. But it's that compared to knowing Christ, compared to trying to be right in the eyes of a holy God through Christ, this way of self-righteousness is rubbish. Why hang on to a bag of trash when you can have the treasure of Christ, of knowing Him, of standing in His righteousness. Paul came to understand that no one, including himself, is perfectly righteous. And he says it in Romans 3.10. He quotes Psalm 14.3. No one is righteous, no, not one. Not righteous in terms of our standing before God. Now, after we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we put our faith and trust in Him and we are saved, we're justified, then God is pleased by our good works. And God saves us to walk in good works, Paul says in Ephesians 2. This is what the Book of Common Prayer, in the back of the Book of Common Prayer, you have the 39 articles, and this is what the articles teach. Article 11, Article 12. But 
Good works are a fruit of our faith in Jesus Christ. They're not the basis of our confidence before God or our standing with God. So Paul says, I discovered as meeting Christ that I cannot look to my own righteousness to be accepted by God. And that means we need the righteousness of another. And the good news, Paul is saying, is that that's what God has given us in Christ. The righteousness of another. You see, there's the way of self-righteousness. This is the way of human religion. It basically says, I hope that I can convince God by my efforts that I'm good enough to be accepted by him. And that on the last day, my good works are going to outweigh the bad stuff that I've done. That's what a lot of religions teach when it comes to this idea of being righteous in the eyes of God. There's this scale, and I hope my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds. That's the way of self-righteousness. But then there's another way, the way that God is revealed in Christ. This is what Paul spells out in verse 9. Look at that. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Righteousness from God that depends on faith. Righteousness from God. So now you see the two ways to answer this question. What is the basis of your confidence as you think of standing before a holy God? Is it a righteousness of your own? Or is it the righteousness from God that comes through faith in Christ? If God has a way of righteousness, I want to take that way and not rely on myself. It's a righteousness from God that comes through faith in Christ. Not a righteousness of my own, Paul says. Now, if it's not a righteousness of my own, whose righteousness is it? Paul says, to be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own. Paul teaches that if you are in Christ by faith, if you're united to Christ by faith, then the righteousness of Christ is accounted to you or credited to you. 2 Corinthians 5:21 He made him God made him Christ he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us It's not that Jesus became a sinner but he was counted as a sinner in the eyes of God as he took upon himself our sin at the cross He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, in order that in Him, in Christ, through faith, we might be the righteousness of God. So Paul teaches that when we put our faith in Christ, we are united to Christ, and we are seen as righteous by God through Christ. Some people ask this question, they raise this question. How is it possible that God can credit to me the righteousness of another, Jesus Christ? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I admit there's some mystery around this. 
But we can make some sense of it when we think about how Paul thinks about it. Paul, when he writes about this subject, and he uses terms like righteousness and credited and accounted, he's using legal terms. He's using terms from the courtroom. He's thinking about a judge and a courtroom. And and that's helpful for us. Think of the laws related to inheritance, for example. In 2009, there were a couple brothers who lived in Hungary outside of Budapest. They were so poor that they lived in a cave and they made their living, if you can call it that, by selling scraps. I don't know how they got into that situation, but that's where they were. In 2009. And then a social worker contacted them and said, you have a relative that was extremely rich. You have a grandmother who's a billionaire and you're in their will. So these guys discovered that their maternal grandmother who lived in Germany had died and left them with around five billion dollars. Talk about rags to riches. (laughs) Cave dwellers to billionaires. They didn't earn that money themselves. It was somebody else's money. But they inherited it because they had this connection. They had this family tie. And now by order of the law, this wealth was credited to them. And they became billionaires. Christ, our brother, lived a perfect life of obedience. And as we trust in him, God the judge credits his righteousness to us. He pronounces us not guilty and more than that, he accounts us perfectly righteous because we're in him. And more than that, he gives us an inheritance that we didn't earn. Eternal life in his presence. When we are gripped by this truth, when we come to understand the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ so that we can know God as our Father and stand in His presence for eternity, when we are gripped by that, it doesn't lead to spiritual passivity or laziness or moral laxity. That is one of the critiques of this kind of teaching and preaching. People will say, well, if you teach that your righteousness is based on what Christ has done for you rather than what you do for God, then you're going to allow people, you're going to give people the excuse to get lazy and not pursue holiness and righteous living. But look at what Paul says. That's not Paul's experience. It can be used that way, but that doesn't mean that it's a proper use. It's an abuse of the truth. What you see in the life of Paul is when he discovers this truth, It makes him, it gives him a desire. This truth about what Christ has done for him gives him a great desire to be more like Christ. He becomes a man obsessed with Christ. He was obsessed with his own doing and now his life is focused on knowing Christ and seeking to become more like him. Not that I've already obtained all this or I'm already perfect, but I press on. That's not passivity. 
I press on. I want to know Christ more. The one who's done this for me, I want to know him more. This knowledge is not an intellectual knowledge. It's not just intellectual. It's an experiential knowledge. Knowing Christ. A mark of, of maturity. Of Christian maturity is this desire to want to know Christ. And then to press on to become more like Christ. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. Paul's writing this from prison, by the way. I don't know if you've had a bad week. <laughs> I don't know if you're going through some difficulty. But the Apostle Paul is writing this from a prison cell. And he often was in prison. And he was often beaten for his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet there was something that animated his life and his pursuit of Christ. And it was knowing what Christ had did, has, has done for him and was doing for him. He presses on. He presses on. Maybe today somebody here needs this reminder on this fifth Sunday in Lent <laughs> that your confidence before God is not based on what you have done, but based on what God has done for you in Christ. Dane Ortland has written, When we put our faith in Christ, we walk out of the courtroom having been declared not guilty. But throughout our lives, we often suffer from gospel amnesia and go back into the courtroom. We can suffer from gospel amnesia when we forget. And when we, begin to, we forget the gospel, we begin to think, I haven't done enough to be confident before God. I haven't, I haven't read enough scripture. I haven't prayed enough. I haven't done enough for God to be confident before Him. We suffer from gospel amnesia when we, we fall into the, the, the trap of, of the world, of worldly thinking, the world teaches us that you've got to prove your worth by your accomplishments. The world says, prove it. Prove that you're worthy. Do something to make us applaud you. Show us what you got. You know, some sort of achievement, some sort of glory, some sort of identity that you can put forward that we can applaud. This is the way of the world. Prove your worth. And we can fall into gospel amnesia when, when we become anxious about our identity and forget our identity is based on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That my worth and my eternal value is found in God's love revealed for me in Christ. And therefore, I live not for the approval of man, but I live to glorify him and to serve people. Not seeking something from somebody, but I'm serving them based on my identity that God has given me in Christ. This is something that, as Paul says, we've, he says, I'm not perfect, but I strive for this. This is something we're called to grow in. And so I just want to stop, uh, stop with that, that question that I raised at the beginning. That question that comes right out of evangelism explosion. As you think about standing before God. And if he were to ask you that question. Why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I would pray in my hope and prayer for everyone hearing this. And everyone in this congregation. Every member of Church of the Resurrection. Anybody who hears it on Facebook. I want them to look not to the self. But to Christ. And say it's because of Christ. My confidence is in Christ. 
and what he's done for me. Let's pray. Lord, we need these reminders of the gospel truth because we can suffer from gospel amnesia. And the world teaches us to find our worth in our achievements and uh, our accomplishments. And even sometimes in the church, we can fall into thinking that our standing with you is based on what you do, what we've done, rather than what you've done. So help us, God, to recover that today. Help us to recover the joy of our salvation. And thank you for what you did for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.